she basically says like when you when you go and hike the Appalachian Trail, you really have to ask the question to yourself beforehand, are you prepared to never be the same person again? Because that trail is going to radically change your worldviews. It's going to radically change the course of your life. You are never going to be the same person with the same sense of mission or priorities or values ever again. Welcome back to the next episode of the Trail Running Women podcast. I have such a fun guest for you guys today. I actually thought I would wait and put this one out in a few weeks, but I'm too excited to get it out. I'm speaking with Finn Melanson, who is the host of Single Track, a podcast covering the professional mountain ultra trail running scene. Finn is based in Salt Lake City, Utah, by way of Cape Elizabeth, where he enjoys year-round recreation in the Wasatch Mountains. So Finn and I get into everything to do with his podcast and a little bit about his running and his life, but he just has this way of speaking where he's obviously very intelligent, but he's very relatable and goal-orientated while still understanding the community aspect of trail running. And he's sort of put together a podcast that touches, like he says, on the professional side and a lot on the business side, but also still makes you feel like you're getting that sort of spiritual energy that people find from trail running where they're wandering around in the mountains. And that really comes through in our conversation too, like where his passion is with trail running and how he's put these things together to become his full-time job doing this podcast. And I really love how he kind of says, you know, he was getting a lot of internal feedback that this is what he was meant to do. And I think when you listen to the show, you can just tell he's so naturally curious and he comes across as very approachable. So I think he does a great job of getting so much out of his guests and was equal in the amount that he was willing to give in this interview. So I sort of walked away thinking that I learned some things and also just had a really fun time chatting and some laughs. So he's something, somebody that I really hope does super well uh, long term. And I think that he's just going to continue to make our sport better, both from the back of the pack community aspect to the coverage of the professional trail running scene, which, you know, can always use work because it's pretty it's pretty new, I feel like, the media side of things. So I will link to everything in the show notes for him. It's at single track is the podcast and the Instagram. And I'll put all of that there. We talk a bit about it at the end. And yeah, if you guys want a backlog of episodes, you can find those on Patreon, which is on the link in our new Instagram at Trail Running Women Pod, which I need to do a better job of. I've told you guys that before because I waited 200 episodes in to start a podcast Instagram, but live and learn, right? So we have a few more spots for coaching available for the 2024 season and race registration is happening. So if you're interested in that, uh, probably the easiest thing is to just find me on that Instagram as well, Trail Running Women Pod, and I will send that info to you. And new this year is a pre-made 50K training plan, which requires a little bit of a base, but it will get you ready in 20 weeks for a 50K. And it also comes with a coaching call to make sure that it's totally personalized to you. So find me on Instagram for all of those details and we can go from there. As usual, if you have questions for our trail tips episodes, or want to reach out for any reason, please do. Okay, I'm going to leave that intro there and let's get into it. Here is Finn. Once again, we are not actually speaking to a woman, but we had requests for somebody who has become pretty big in the 
community as well as the business side of it. So there's so many things about your personal running as well as everything you are doing with your podcast that I want to get into. So thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show, Finn Melanson. Well, it's an honor to be here, Hillary. And I was telling you offline that I have listened to many episodes of this show and it's interesting to finally hear your voice being a part of a conversation together. So thank you so much. Yeah, totally. I'm excited. I've listened to yours quite a bit too. And I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, but wondered because I feel like our directions are a little bit different and how Mm. they would overlap. So I'm excited to get into some of the reasons why you started and and that sort of thing as well. But so if anybody doesn't know who you are, give us your elevator pitch of um, where you're living and, and what you do. So I currently live in Salt Lake City, Utah, but I'm very proud of my New England roots. So I, I do like to emphasize that I grew up outside of Portland, Maine, lived there for almost 15 years uh, in a place called Cape Elizabeth and still go back there off and have a lot of family in the area and the Appalachian Mountains in that area are just beautiful and inspiring and to a large extent got me on this trail running slash hiking journey. But um, I'm actually full time now in the trail running media space. So uh, a little over two years ago, I started this podcast called Single Track. And honestly, it was just a way to have conversations with people in the community that I either (laughs) idolized to some extent or was fascinated by and felt like had answers to questions that I was looking for. And um, since then, we've we've evolved. So we have a little bit of a race coverage business and then a, a little bit of a production company on the side too. So like when you see a lot of athlete-based films on YouTube that are, you know, talking about either their lifestyle or their preparation and execution for a certain race, um, you know, we're beginning to be the people behind some of that content. So uh, it's expanded a bit over time, but uh, I'm very proud of like our humble roots on the podcasting side of things. And um, that'll never change. Like I, I, I can't imagine this, this side of it ever um, changing too much just because I think uh, there's something powerful about just having like a long form conversation with someone like yourself. And uh, I always like when I think about my evolution in the space, almost all of it comes from these types of one-on-one conversations. So I love what I do. Yeah. And one of the coolest things is how fast you did grow and that you clearly struck kind of a niche that was needed. But equally, every time I go to Apple, there seems to be another trail running podcast. So what do you think about yours kind of set it apart from the others? Well, I'm sure we probably have a lot of common ground here because I know, you know, you also have a really well-respected show. I think a lot of it is just it comes down to consistency and staying power, which is super boring. And I think when you interview a lot of athletes, they'll tell you that, you know, they found success because they're consistent either in training or in racing. But um, if I'm being honest for the first, and again, this is, we're 15, no, we're, we're 28 months into the process. I would say for the first 15 months of doing single track, there were three listeners. There was, it was myself kind of checking the episode to make sure that everything was okay it was my mom listening out of sympathy. And it was also my, my partner, Jules, also probably uh, just listening in solidarity. And it was kind of like that, like speaking out into the void, speaking in sort of like an echo chamber like way for many months. And um, I think the reason I kept doing it is just because I was still personally getting a lot out of it. But right. I do think there are some people that start out in the podcasting space or in any space for that matter, where um, 
it could be the case that they're being motivated for sort of external reasons. And my reasons have always been internal and there could be nobody listening to the show. And like I said, I would still get a ton of value out of it. So um, I think, yeah, there's a lot to be said about just like the waiting game and just producing content on a consistent basis and sort of just waiting for traction to happen. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I will say I do come from a marketing background as well. And, you know, there, there's a lot to be said about, you know, positioning and, and focus and, you know, developing a niche and, and looking at what's being uh, created in the space and, and how you can be different. So I definitely looked at all of those factors and, and sort of came to an understanding of like where I could fit in and where things would work. And so there was that piece too, but I, podcasting in my opinion is such a black box in terms of how to grow it. And I do believe that the number one thing, like most things in life is just the consistency piece. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's, I mean, your radio voice probably helps as well. You're quite nice to listen to. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're you're so hitting the nail on the head with uh, the reasons why you do it. And perhaps people now kind of think that it would be a source of income through sponsorships or whatever it is. But if you're not naturally curious in that space, I think you can't fake it for long enough for people to stay interested. Yeah. And I can tell you from from firsthand experience, just having been, you know, in other jobs at various points in life, working for certain companies, um, it is impossible for me to feign interest or um, as, as a function of like that, an ability to kind of put my best foot forward and and do good work. And so, um, yeah, I think like I was getting a lot of feedback internally, just kind of like with my own like proclivities and interests and stuff like that, like that this is what I was meant to be doing to some extent. And it was the kind of feedback that I hadn't necessarily gotten in in other parts of my life um, from like a work standpoint. So, uh, yeah, I think listen, there's a, there's a another big piece of it is just like listening to your internal voice and uh, and yeah, that's super important. Yeah, yeah, that's a fun point, and that it's hard to do with podcasting. This is kind of a funny tangent, but especially as a woman, when you say have kids or go through maternity leave and you feel yeah. this kind of thing that you found passion for. But like you said, it has to be consistent. And you're like, how do you filter in natural breaks for life, but keep mm -hmm. that consistency up and all these sort of unique aspects that come to creating content, I think. What's kept you going? Because I know you've been at it, I mean, longer than I have. And um, so I'm curious, like in your case, uh, yeah, what's, what's kept you going? How do you stay fresh? How do you stay inspired? You know, there's been up and downs for sure, where like having kids is a is a big one. Yeah. Where you're tired and it's just it's really hard to find a time where you don't have a screaming baby, which is like mm. the logistics of it get challenging. But I think much like you said, the internal part where now what happens is listeners will send guest ideas. Yeah. That there's never been this clear time where I don't have anybody to talk to. There's <laughs> always been somebody that's had this story that I'm sort of interested in and I want to chat with them. Um, and I, I did have to take time and say, okay, like if I'm going to be in this stage of my life, I went down for one year where I just did two episodes a month instead of four uh, mm. and was okay. As a person who also wants to do everything well, having mm. to say it's okay to do this imperfectly and that... Yeah is something I can live with. What you just described there, I, I've, I've always called it sort of a second brain and it's the phenomenon has 
definitely like manifested itself in the last year where I would, again, I'm just spitballing here guessing, but I, I would bet that 75% of the episodes that we've done on single track in the last 10 to 12 months have been generated based on audience suggestions and not just the guest selection or the the topic suggestion, but a lot of the questions around it too. And it's amazing once you do build up this audience, um, how it becomes self-sustaining because you, if you're willing to really bring in the audience and their expertise and their worldviews, the sort of like the content treadmill you're on, um, it doesn't become necessarily as much of a grind, at least for us. That, that's been such an incredible blessing the last year. Yeah, exactly. Where you're not going, how do I think of a topic every week? They're just sort of coming and you have this community. So it's it's really neat in that sense. I think I, I did have that worry too early on. Like, is my are my interests finite? And I think what you realize, especially once you get into the group of podcasting, that just by virtue of doing the act of podcasting and, and starting to engage with the trail running community, ideas come along that you could not have possibly imagined when you started or, or in your early days because because of just how situational they are and how it's kind of like the second, third, or fourth level to your education in this space. And so um, I also have no worries that like five years from now, we're going to be scraping the barrel because I think there's just going to be like hopefully more people listening with, uh, again, fresh ideas and, and the sport has changed. And so I think it I think it does ultimately become a virtuous cycle for anybody that's like thinking about also getting into the space and wondering like, do I have enough to bring? And I, I think that that's the wrong question. It's like, just am I, am I baseline curious? Am I baseline interested? And can I trust that, you know, those, uh, those traits of mine are going to, you know, support me in the long run? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sort of on that same theme, your interests I find interesting. Like, so there's always this kind of idea that trail runners are, <laughs> how can I say this? Like not as interested in business. Uh, I don't know how to articulate this properly, but that it's, you know, more of a dirtbag sport and we're living out of our vans and that sort of thing. So the aspect of yours that is around the business side of it and some of the interviews, even about the running event and things like that, um, mm. And you just reposted one the other day that I found really interesting where it's like, it's funny to think it's just a sport that I like to do, but I also am curious about this once I start listening. Was that, did you have any fear maybe going in with that aspect of it? Like wondering if it would be a match? That's a really good question. I think I will say this. I actually, and my views have changed on this a lot. I actually think that I had a fair bit of bravado coming into this where I felt like there was latent interest in that the, that the the present content wasn't serving that latent interest and or uh, that like people don't know what they don't know. And once they are exposed to something, they're going to like it. It's kind of like that whole Steve Jobs thing of like, I don't believe in market research. I'm going to I'm going to make a product and people are then going to realize that, you know, it's, it's good for them or turns out that they had a preference for it. But um I, I still, you know, after we've almost done 300 episodes, we've done a lot of business related content. It always ends up being our lowest performing content from a download standpoint. And I even, even from like a, like a, like a listener engagement uh, standpoint, like you can see, like people are way more apt to listen to an episode with, for example, Courtney DeWalter end to end than an episode with, you know, 
I'm just thinking of a recent one, like the the founder of the pro triathlon organization. And I, I don't judge that negatively or positively. I just think, um, you know, like a lot of the people in the trail running community just have different interests. Um, but even that said, I still think that there are, you know, let's call it a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people that um, are out there and, and they do appreciate it. And I, I still want to serve that audience to the best of my ability at the end of the day for two reasons. One, I think it's, it's valuable content for them. And in two, um, frankly, it keeps me interested. It, it keeps me kind of on my toes from a learning standpoint, because a lot of these people just give me a lot of great perspective and new ideas. And, um, yeah, there's just, there's just, and I, this is changing, but there's still not a lot of it being produced. Like I think that the content that we're creating at single track on this front is the tippity tippity tip of the iceberg in terms of, of what's possible in this space. So, um, yeah, I, I've had, I've had a lot of like new thoughts. Honestly, you're catching me at a really interesting time because I've had a lot of new thoughts in this space. Like, um, gosh, like, you know, I, I had these like ideas even like a year ago that, you know, trail running was, was waiting in the wings to become a sport similar to basketball or baseball or football, where at the very least you could see the coexistence of a super professionalized version of it where, you know, athletes are making these awesome livings and, and media operators are profiting off of it. And brands take a, a secondary role from a financial standpoint to these leagues and, and owners of teams and stuff. But um, I've sort of come to the realization that either a, we are super, super, super far away from that in terms of like, not just months or years, but decades. And B, I think I'm, I'm just more appreciative of the fact now that, uh, you know, similar to sports like climbing and surfing trail running is, is still very much a soul sport and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's a lot of amazing things about that. And it's probably why people are, you know, when you think about like the best performing interviews out there or what people gravitate towards, it ends up being stuff that's more like, you know, about the creativity of the sport and, and, and the philosophy of the sport and convening with nature and, you know, the tribal aspects of like finish line culture and, and, you know, um, these grassroots races. And so, uh, yeah, th a lot has changed in my mind. And, uh, that's, that's part of podcasting and that's part of being on an educational journey where, um, you can't, you can't say to yourself that like the, the finish line of this or the end goal is set in stone. You, you kind of have to be malleable and you have to be willing to follow where, where the facts and the realities take you. So, uh, that was a long winded answer there, but that's, that's my current thinking. No, that's, that's super interesting because I, I totally agree. And I've had those thoughts before where like, is this going to be in the Olympics and is this going to become a sport like basketball or hockey or something? Yeah. But then feeling at the same time, like, ah, I just think the people in the sport would have such major pushback and you sort mm. of see it with these controversies with UTMB. I mean, yes. obviously I'm in Vancouver. I know Gary yeah, and his yeah. quite well. Um, I ran WAM last year. It was my, the highlight of my summer, like is very close to us. So when you see this happen, you realize the strength in the sport is not the corporate side at all. It's the community and everything you just kind of talked about. And it's people escape into nature. And I don't think they'd want to mess with that or they'd be nervous that it, that would alter what it is to them. And, you know, I mean, 
I, I, I'd, I'd be curious to get your perspective too, because I know that you have this professional hockey background. You have like a professional sort of kickboxing martial arts background. Have there been any like like thread lines that kind of unite all three sports for you or has each one sort of been distinct in terms of like the importance of the the community element versus the professional element? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the fighting never got professional for sure. I got too old, I think too early for that. But (laughs) I think the community aspect was different in trail running than the other ones where even playing hockey there's this you obviously you're a teammate first but there's always this inter-squad competition about who's going to be on the starting line and who's going to be on the power play and all that sort of thing that comes with being highly competitive but in trail running even when and this might be because I am not going to be a professional trail runner so it's Mm. only ever going to be as good as I can get Um, but my training partner, for example, I came second at WAM and she came first and where if in any other sport that would, I'd be happy, but that would also eat me up inside. And there's something about trail running where you're just so legitimately excited for your friend's success and for your own, if you feel like you reached your own potential. And there's a uniqueness there that I didn't find in anything else. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, it does. And by the way, that, that, that's super cool that you and your training partner finished one, two at Wham. Well, and our other one came third. So that oh was my our gosh. Yeah, that was our goal. So to be able to uh, get on the podium together was pretty awesome for sure. I actually have one more, and I don't mean to turn this interview, but I ha- I know so little about Wham. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of Gary Robbins in the past. Like consumed all of his vlog content for Barkley. Multiple times have consumed that Ethan Newberry film, and yeah, just all the content he's put out there, I've followed but have not had a chance to talk with him post, you know, this whole, uh, this Whistler debacle, this Whistler controversy. Um, What was Wham like? Like, what was that race like in your experience? Like, what was the community element like, the course, et cetera? Because I I know next to nothing and um, I'm still kind of gathering facts about the whole experience. Yeah. I mean, it was, have you ever been up here? Have you been to Whistler? I, it's, it's like, at the t- again, the tippity top of my to do list, and uh, I have a friend here in Salt Lake, Leah Yingling, who now runs for Lululemon, and her and her husband Mike have made multiple trips up there in the past year, and they just keep raving like, if we ever left Salt Lake, it would be to Vancouver. Yeah, it's it's epic, it's unbelievable, and I mean, the North Shore in itself is is absolutely stunning, and then Whistler is this epic alpine with the yeah the terrain to make an amazing hundred miler where I'm going with that is kind of over the years, Gary had this vision that everybody knew he could put together. And if you'd run there at all, um, you knew how amazing it could be, but it's also pretty remote when you get up there. So then of course the logistics of how do you get aid stations and all of that stuff. And then there was COVID Yep. and then he had to change the course last minute when it did come back because of Grizzlies. Mm. And, um, that's, that's fair. So, there were so many years that he put in these huge efforts to make this, this like massive, amazing race. I mean, everybody knows about Squamish 50-50, so clearly he's got the ability to do it. But it was a goal race for everybody in the community, right down from our fastest runners that live here locally, like Ellie Greenwood, yeah, to people that were beginning because there was the 23K and then the 50K was sort of this 
like epic 50 if you could pull that off at the end of summer. So it really did bring our whole community together as far as somebody who's goal it was to run farther than 15k for the first time in their life and somebody else's to run a fast 100 miler and i think the disappointing part was that it had sort of just felt like it kind of took off last year like things finally had come together and this was when it was going to grow and it was going to build and then of course to find that vale after they purchased whistler just wasn't giving permits and stuff that they were coming out with in the news, like that somebody said it wasn't safe, things that didn't make any any sense and sound like just gossip. And that was the sort of thing that was getting based on. And from the outside, it sort of looked to everybody like maybe this isn't making as much money as Vail thinks it should make. Um, so, of course, when the UTMB stuff came out, it was pretty shocking and not surprising, unfortunately, because they can probably make it a bigger more money-making machine than than Wham was. You know, and I know there's there's so much to talk about here and, you know, we could probably do an entire episode on it, but one of the things that impressed me so much about Gary's operation was that they took the time, I'm not sure if it was after last year or the year before, but to do an economic impact study, which showed just how much influence and and yeah, outcome they had on, you know, local economy spending and, you know, people staying at hotels and you know, uh, patronizing local restaurants and stuff like that. And it was, it was one of the first studies that I've ever seen that showed just how important, um, these grassroots races are to their local communities. I mean, in Vancouver area, Whistler area is just one example, but, um, and I talked with a lot of RDs here in the States who were like, yeah, we want to do this now. We want to, you know, commission one of these for the local Phoenix area or, you know, the local, uh, Portland, Maine area to see just how, like far our influence goes and it's great. I mean, yeah, there's just so many reasons why that's awesome. But, um, after seeing that evidence of how much of a positive impact there was there, it was even more shocking to me that, um, you know, the, the cards fell the way they did in this scenario, because obviously the race was, you know, doing great from that standpoint, which is like from a macro standpoint, even more than you could ever ask for. Yeah. And doing great at, such an early age. Like I think yeah. it, it probably was able, you were able to forecast what this could be for the town. And the thing is in September too, like it is generally shoulder season or getting into it. So it's even got a bigger impact at that time. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It is funny to think whoever was in charge, maybe they don't know Gary's impact or what it was to think that this was a decision that maybe would just fly under the radar when it was announced. And then you wonder if the comments on the Instagram, which I'm sure you've seen, were shocking to people at UTMB or or what their thought on it was. We we just did a uh, an episode on this. We have this little mini series called The Long Run Archives where we were speculating on this. And when you combine the whole Whistler incident with UTMB firing Corinne Malcolm for uh, you know being outspoken on certain issues on the live stream, we were just sort of collectively wondering, are, is their entire marketing plan for this global series just deciding to sort of punt the the North American influence? But um, there's so many questions I have here. And, and one of the things that I lament, even though it seems in this case that there is one side that is that is very much in the right and there's one side that's very much in the wrong, as a podcaster who's trying to and I do not pretend to be a journalist, but as a podcaster who's trying as best as they can to 
gather all the facts and as quickly as possible to interview every single possible stakeholder, influencer, person with Intel about these scenarios in like a pretty condensed time span, it's really tough. And you and because in this day of age, people expect moral judgments to happen almost immediately after news breaks on something, it puts a lot of pressure on the situation. And if there's one thing that I hope for in the next one to two to three years, it's that there's like and I don't even know how you do this, but just more streamlined outlets for accessing all the people that you need to talk to as quickly as possible. And then, you know, presenting them on record, preferably in a long, you know, form format and helping people decide that way. Because, uh, yeah, just a lot of stuff that's transpired in the last four to five months, it's based on how scattered everything is. It's required people to make judgments pretty quickly. Um, with sometimes incomplete information. And, you know, again, I'll probably spill my my cards here in my politics, but like I, I consider Corinne to be a great friend and a lot of what she advocates for, I also, you know, agree with and in in a much smaller capacity advocate for as well. But um for me, like her her uh, decision to be outspoken, that's something that I celebrate even with people who, you know, I might not agree with on some things or anything. I, I think that even, even in like a company setting, I think it's, it's a good thing to allow people to, to be expressive and, and to criticize because I think the best way either to make change or even to see nothing come of an issue is to air things out as opposed to try to suppress things. And I'll be very curious to see what happens with future broadcasts and with UTMB as a whole now that they have doubled down on this precedent of uh, suppressing criticism and not just like damning criticism, but just like pretty constructive criticism that, you know, it wasn't like Corinne has ever threatened anything in the process. It's always been pretty sustainable the way she's presented it and acting as somebody who wants to operate within the system within the confines of utmb and not like oh i'm going to start a revolution and create this like alternative stream or you know she's really tried to support the brand through the process because she cares about the sport and i think she knows how how much good utmb has done in a lot of ways in the last 20 years so the whole situation just shocks me but um i would love to see general as, as a as as a principle, I, w- I would love to see like a celebration of outspokenness, regardless of you know a person's views in the long run. I think it's just it's just it's just good. It's just healthy for the system. Yeah, I totally agree because, like you alluded to, there was no offside comments that I saw. As far as I'm aware, it was sort of a push to see if we can do better to grow the female side of the sport and the female coverage. Yeah. Uh, and I might be wrong, but that's just kind of what I was able to to gather, which I think you're right, is so important and it's just going to make things better. And it is a, a kind of a source of weakness in the sport in general that we can all work on. I mean, if you look at the stats, it's quite clear, right? The, and the only thing that I can think of, and I'm, yeah, to, to play devil's advocate, there's a lot that I don't know about the French culture, which is where this organization is headquartered. I don't know a lot about norms in that country, norms around how they do business, the the gender norms, all of that kind of stuff. Like I am totally in the dark about that kind of stuff. And 
I actually put out like a a message on our Instagram yesterday. Like, can can somebody send me some information just around like how this culture operates, especially in these types of circumstances? And I don't necessarily think it's going to change my mind on anything. Or uh, yeah, it's not going to change my mind. I don't think. But um, sometimes I wonder if there's if there's stuff that I don't know there that would help me better understand why they made the decision they made. One partner we have been working with for a long time now is AG1. So AG1 is something I started taking every day back when I learned about them to replace my multivitamin because taking a vitamin for every different thing that I needed just got to be too cumbersome and I wasn't able to stick with it long enough to see benefits. So enter AG1, which is just a simple powder that you mix with water in the morning and get a more bioavailable form of all high-quality vitamins and minerals was so easy. The other thing is it actually tastes good. So the first thing I noticed were definitely a difference in my energy as well as my gut. So the probiotics and the prebiotics are so important. And gut health is so huge for athletes, for training and racing, especially when we want to cut out fruit and vegetables leading into a race, but you still want to get everything that you need to recover and feel like you're absolutely at your best come race day. So AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I've been they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to drinkag1.com backslash TRWP. That's drinkag1.com backslash TRWP to check it out. I'm getting the sense that I could probably talk to you for hours because it's really interesting and I did not plan to spend half an hour on this stuff. But However much time you need, I'm, I'm down. <laughs> um, I'd like to back up a bit and get to know you kind of personally a bit more. Can you, sure. like even before the podcast, uh, let's talk about your running. When did you find trail running? Were you an athlete as a kid and, and uh, what got you into to running and eventually mountains? So I grew up, like, I became conscious. I turned, like, five or six years old in the mid-90s. And so I was, like, a late 90s, early 2000s kid. And that was right around when, uh, again, this is my parents' retelling of things, not necessarily mine. But I they like to say that I grew up at the beginning of sort of the helicopter area, era of parenting. And so they wanted to vehemently rebel against that. And as early as I can remember, they always made me walk to things, bike to things, take public transportation to things to kind of teach me the lessons of resiliency and independence and making tough decisions and and hard work. So like if I wanted to, we lived in like a suburban setting and if I wanted to get like new baseball cards or new Pokemon cards, they made me like walk or take the bus to the mall, which was like five or six miles away. And so as I've tried to like psychoanalyze why I'm in ultras, I, I think back to that era where they attached movement to like some sort of interesting end goal or mission. And I like to think that in a lot of ways I was, I was primed to be an ultra runner or an ultra walker at <laughs> six. Um, but I didn't really like, I ended up in high school, middle school, et cetera. Like I played ball sports, basketball, football, baseball, uh, soccer, like tennis. I literally played everything, um, in college, played a little bit of football, then got into weightlifting 
it wasn't until I graduated college, this was back in 2014, I was just thinking to myself like in the last months of my senior year that I hadn't really had an experience where uh, I had like really felt like I was transitioning into adulthood. Like I was having one of those, um, I, don't, I don't know what you call them, but just like those moments where like you, you were once a kid, you were once an adolescent and now you're an adult. Like I hadn't had one of those passages yet. And I came upon the Appalachian Trail and I thought, this is perfect. This is exactly what I need. I need a little bit of hardship. I need a little bit of, you know, convening with nature. I need a, a lot of time just thinking and, and plotting my next move. And so I did that back in 2014. And there's this great Jen Farr Davis quote. I just finished reading one of her books, Pursuit of Endurance. So it's like right on the top of my head where she basically says, like, when you, when you go and hike the Appalachian Trail, you really have to ask the question to yourself beforehand, are you prepared to never be the same person again? Because that trail is going to radically change your worldviews. It's going to radically change the course of your life. You are never going to be the same person with the same sense of mission or priorities or values ever again. Of course, I hadn't read her book and I hadn't seen that quote, so I kind of went into it naive, but it totally did all those things. And it was the single most important stretch of time in my life in terms of setting the course for everything else I wanted to do. Um, there was like a two-year gap after where I went back to my home state of Maine, worked in politics, and was sort of like too busy, too on the road to develop a running practice. But as things kind of settled down in like 2016, got into the trail running and then got the bug hard. I was in Portland, Maine, which is not really like a, a trail running mecca, but I had family in Utah and had started to hear stories about, you know, that's one of the fabled lands for, for being an ultra runner and kind of on a whim moved out here. And I've been out here ever since, uh, went back to school here for business in like 2018 and, uh, made my way to the podcast in 2021. And so, yeah, running trail running has been a huge part of my life since 2016. It was precipitated by the Appalachian trail and that was precipitated, I think by my parents, just encouraging me to use my feet to get what I wanted as often as possible very early in life. It kind of gave me goosebumps, that story and that quote. That's awesome. <laughs> it's it's very rare that I feel like it happens almost so naturally for someone where it feels like there would be like, of course. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I have, there, there was not much positive uh, reinforcement in my family. Like my parents have always, for the record, my parents have always wholeheartedly supported whatever I've wanted to do. But what I mean to say is there, there, there are, and were no runners in my family. Like my parents still think of all of my trail running stuff as, as walking. They always kind of ask like, how was your walk earlier today? Which used, I used to bristle at, but then like when I'm on trails, I'm sort of like an average runner. I end up doing a lot of walking cause it's, you know, that's my pace. And so they're kind of right. But, um, yeah, they're, they're totally like disassociated. They're not really in the scene. I have a brother and sister. They're not in the scene. So it's not like I had this, this, uh, family or friends influence kind of, you know, nudging me into the scene. It was very much, uh, self-directed and then reinforced by like the through hiking community. And, um, I mean, I also benefited a ton from social media. Like I definitely, you know, benefited hugely from seeing those Billy Yang films back in 2014, 15, 16, that 
you know, validated a lot of like my interests at the time in the Scott Jurek book. And I think I read a Dina Castor book, uh, um, found out about Heather Anderson, what she was doing on the long trails, Jen Farr Davis. So, um, yeah, I, I benefited hugely from the internet as well, I, I should say. Yeah, yeah, that's fair because it is sort of a hidden gem of a thing until you're exposed in whatever way that is and kind of have to hunt those things down. But it sounds like maybe there's not runners in your family, but kind of like what you said, the mindset was primed and was there. Yeah, I mean, we, we're we an athletic family. Like my mom is super athletic. She taught me how to throw a baseball. She taught me how to ski. Um she would sort of like play quarterback. I was a receiver in high school and college and she would throw to me. And so, um, yeah, very athletic family. Like they're all, they're all from the new England area. So they're rabid Celtics fans and Bruins fans and Patriots fans, Red Sox fans. And so they understand sports and like, we were always a sports family, but, um, I kind of broke rank and became a runner. Whereas they're all still like thinking in terms of, you know, um, is this a rebuilding year for the Patriots or, you know, are the Celtics <laughs> going to win the title this year? Meanwhile, I'm talking about like Courtney DeWalter and Jim Walmsley. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I love that. I can relate to that actually. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the Appalachian Trail. Sorry. How old were you? I was 22. Okay. And what did that look like? So how many days did it take you and were you completely on your own? I was completely on my own. And, you know, there's a whole spectrum of how to approach the trail. Um, and there is even some, um, I, I call it like emotional regulation. Like there's, there are certain people who say like, there's a, there's a certain way to do a through hike, but, um, I did it in about three months in change. Um, you know, there are some people, again, I mentioned Jen Farr Davis who did it in a month and a half. There are some people who do it in four to six months. I was a little bit time constrained. I did have a job that I had to get back to in Maine in mid August. So literally like the day that I finished my last final in college, I hopped a flight to Atlanta, Georgia, got shuttled up to Springer Mountain and was off to the races. And then I just knew like I could either section hike the trail and, and do as much as I could in three months, or I could just like, you know, push it a little bit and, and, and do the whole thing. And I just, I just chose the latter because, um, I mean, I am from Maine. And so there is that romantic sense of, of walking home and summoning Katahdin and, uh, I'm definitely a home buddy as well. So I, I felt, I felt that urge every single day to get a little bit closer to, to Maine as, as, as efficiently as I could. Yeah. Like it's so interesting if you were to say that there's a hundred mile course on there and you have to do it as fast as you can, and it's going to take however many hours and maybe you'll be out there for one night. It doesn't feel scary at this point, but going out for three months and having to carry a big pack and be supported is still sounds terrifying. So. Oh my gosh. It was crazy. And you know, I, I am not really a logistics person or a person who is great at preparation. Like for whatever reason, you know, people talk about the benefits of visualization and I totally buy into that, but I am not somebody that can really like in my head think too clearly or critically about the future. So like I prepared two days before I walked into an REI and, you know, there's this quote, the size of your pack is directly proportional to the size of your fears of the trail. And so naturally I had this pack that was like 80 pounds and I had everything like a cast iron skilled in there. I mean, all of those classic, you know, stereotypical, uh, un, you know, over-prepared through hikers. Like I had every single piece of gear you could buy in REI, I bought it. And, 
Um, there's this famous point about 30 miles into the trail at a place called Neil's Gap. Uh, there's an outfitter there. I mean, you literally it walks straight through the trail. And I went there and that was where I learned all about the benefits of ultralight backpacking. And they took my pack and probably shaved like 60 pounds off of it. And I think I donated half of it and sent half home to my family. It was it was wild. That's cool. That's really cool. And then, so you were 22-ish, and it looks like around 24, you start getting into actual trail races and uh, pretty quickly, some really long stuff. The next year, doing a 68-miler and then uh, Western States 100-miler, which now I feel like people get into the sport younger, but to have the diligence to train for some of these things at 24, 25, what did that feel like for you when a lot of people are still kind of out partying all night? Yeah, there was just a yearning to get back to the place that kicked off this this new life of mine. I think I think I talked I mentioned earlier that the trail really does revolutionize you and you're never the same person ever again and I had an idea of where my life was going to go and the trail totally changed it and I think once I found out that there was this micro version of through hiking which is ultra running, I started looking for races in that northern Georgia uh, Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee triangle that I could go back to and kind of just like celebrate that place where it all began. And so I think I did this race called the Georgia death race there three or four years in a row, just because it was sort of like a pilgrimage back to, um, a place that just had so much meaning and, and influence in my life. And, uh, so yeah. And I, I think I, I did like get better and better at that race and in that racing over the years, but initially it was sort of like um, just trying to reconnect with the through hiking uh, spirit. It's kind of like going to church. I felt like I it, like I was going to church once a year just to like remember where I came from and uh, how important that place was to me. And it was always like a great reminder of my values and and why I was still in it. Like it, I, I do I do find that um, like even even in something like trail running media or trail racing, this idea of ritual is really important. And you know. Um, sort of in a trail running sense, renewing your vows. And I think that's what I was doing when I was going to those races year after year was I was sort of renewing my vows with the sport, renewing my vows with the craft of trail running. And it was just the place that I went where you would feel this overwhelming sense of, yeah, I'm everything I'm doing is totally in alignment. And it gives you like, I mean, for me, it gave me 10, 11, 12 months of runway. And it wasn't until coincidentally or um, yeah, it, when it ran out, it was like a year and that's when I went back to the, to those races. That's really cool. That's a nice way of describing it. Uh, and I think it's, it's really fun how you seem to have both aspects of it where like going back to your podcast, the business side, the interviews that are sort of more straightforward, I guess. And then also having that emotional side to the connection of trail running and being able to bring them into one thing together. And maybe that's what your podcast is able to do that other people aren't, is to have both sides of it. So you're connecting with the audience emotionally and then also from the opposite spectrum of it all. Yeah, I think about it in a couple of ways. I mean, one, I have I have been blessed in the last like five to seven years from a work standpoint to, to kind of uh, develop that I guess the, the business acumen or the, or the business interest, like that's just where my, a lot of my nine to five focus and education was for a while. And so I feel like I can bring that intersection in. Um, I'm certainly not an elite athlete 
by any stretch of the imagination. So it's tough for me to have those conversations with athletes where I can truly empathize with their plight as, you know, as elites and, you know, trying to hit a podium in these, in these high stakes settings. But, um, I do feel like the, the conversely, the, the perspective that I can bring is just an interest in, uh, you know, how they're navigating the sport and, um, and some commentary. Like if, if you look at other sports, there are a lot of journalists and, and media people who, you know, they weren't necessarily players in, in their like twenties and thirties, but they were avid followers of the sport. And, you know, they did think about it from like an academic standpoint and they do bring a valid perspective. So, um, I guess for me, like the, the nexus is, is the business part being a super fan and then at a much smaller scale. Um, yeah, I guess being, being in the arena to some extent, like having run these ultras, but, um, you know, there are, there are people out there like, you know, we, we mentioned Corinne Malcolm earlier and, and Dylan Bowman who, who are these professional athletes and they also, you know, conduct these interviews. And I certainly don't have, you know, the same level of empathy or experience that, that they have that they can bring to these interviews. So it's, it's part of the reason why this is such an awesome space, because with every single podcast in this arena, you're going to get a little bit of different perspective and all are equally valuable and all are important. And if you didn't have one or the other, um, you know, you would feel an absence. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's one thing to listen to two pros and feel super inspired. And it's another thing to be able to have somebody in the conversation with them that helps you bridge the gap where you can relate to what they're saying for sure. It also helps too. And again, I, I haven't, you're, you're really making me think in ways I haven't thought before. But um, I also feel like I have, in some cases, more latitude with the athletes in terms of what I can ask them and, and the places we can go topic-wise and conversation-wise, largely because I am not one of them. And there is some psychological safety and maybe pressure diffusing from the situation, knowing that I'm not necessarily a contemporary. I'm just an interested kind of observer. And I have found that because of that relationship, I do, I am able to get some things out. And that's also been one of the benefits long-term of the podcast. Like until very recently when I've gotten super small amounts of name recognition, I'm just an average Joe, you know, um, with, you know, some slightly outlandish questions that have maybe never been asked before. <laughs> and uh, I, I can take it, I can take advantage of that anonymity. Like I don't have any of these pre-established or preordained relationships that maybe complicate what I can and can't ask or how they may or may not respond. Um, I'm kind of coming at it with no strings attached. So there is a blessing there. I will say that that probably does change a little bit. The more intertwined you get into the community and, and the more relationships you build and just how inevitable that is. But there was like a two year runway there where, because I was so unattached and unassuming um, you, you could, you could benefit from that was sort of an advantage. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really kind of fun way of looking at it. And you're you're right. It's not a threat at all. So they can just speak, speak freely. I'm wondering, you spoke about this being your full-time job now. Can you talk us through a bit about that transition? When I started the podcast back in August 2021, I was a marketer at a fairly large uh, Portugal-based software company. And then I bounced the two for about a year. And then in 
the fall of 2022, I went full-time at this. And it was a great decision in retrospect. There's no way I could have gotten the show to this point without making that move. But there's also no question that there was massive struggle involved. Um, like, you know, in full confidence, um, I haven't always had like a ton of financial privilege. Like I certainly graduated with a lot of college debt, um, you know, stuff like that. Like I, 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 I'm, I'm not someone who comes from means, but I will say one of the biggest things that made this possible was, um, my wife, Jules, uh, like as soon as I made this decision to go full time, she's like, she's like, I'll support you. Like I did have income coming in at that time, but it was, it was not quite variable, but each month was, you would kind of wonder like, am I going to be able to make ends meet? And 75% of the time I did, but like there were a couple months there where I didn't and she was there to support. And so um, it's gotten to a much stabler place, especially in the last like three or four months. Um, we've really had some some pretty big breaks that have made this um, way more sustainable, but there's no way that um, I could have made, uh, let's call it October, 2022 to June 2023 work without her support. And so I'm a huge proponent of, uh, of, of, uh, highlighting some of the people behind the scenes who make this work because, uh, she's, she kind of, in order for me to make my dreams possible and to do this full time, she had to be bought in and she was super selfless in the process. And, uh, I think about, like, I even get emotional thinking about it, like the level of self selflessness that she displayed towards my dreams. Um, was remarkable. And like, we've even started to talk about it in the last two to three months as, as single track has gotten more sustainable. Like she's thinking about starting a, um, a flower business and she's actually the co-director for this organization called women of the Wasatch here in Salt Lake. And she might get more involved in that. So we're already starting to think about ways that I can kind of, uh, give back to, to her dreams and what she wants to do next. Cause she was so pivotal. Like I just can't reemphasize enough how, how important she was in the process. Yeah, for sure. Because even the the support that's not fully discussed or a tangible thing, but just when you wake up in the night and sort of have anxiety that you wonder this is the right thing, having the person beside you be able to like tell you, yes, this is the right thing is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it's amazing. I mean, we like in the process, it actually, in a lot of ways, it was a blessing for us too, because we had to become way more financially savvy. Like I think I was certainly a victim of, of what I call lifestyle creep from a couple of years working in like software marketing where, you know, you make a certain living and you kind of, your, your sense of uh, style and, and what you want to buy and stuff kind of rises to the level of your current salary. And we really had to make some, some tough sacrifices in that first year. And we got super into like couponing and um, like we, we, we started following all these cash stuffing YouTube channels and, uh, like Dave Ramsey and stuff like that. Like it was just like, you know, and so there, there was a lot of good, it actually financially, even though I ended up making a lot less money, I think I took like a 90, eh, not 90%, probably 75% salary cut, uh, doing this full time. Um, it actually like kind of financially righted the ship for us in a lot of ways too. So, um, it was a, it was a crazy first year, but super glad we did it. Yeah. And I mean, you're still young, but you eventually start to get more and more aware that the value of time is better than just cash. 
better. And I think I am a, I'm a better human being and I'm a better partner and hopefully a better servant to society when I'm in alignment. But, um, I was looking at your website, like, it seems like you're, are you full-time in the running space as well? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> it's your situation. Well. I've done a couple, um, some part-time sales as well, um, okay. that I continue to do. And partly it's just, kids are expensive and you know, you want to, your kid to be able to play all the sports they want and that gets more and more expensive. So it gets scarier to think, okay, I'm going to do this full time. But I think I am in a place where I hundred percent could. And the second that you are just, it's the sink or swim mentality and you just Mm. extra mile to make it work. I think it would be great. Um, I just also feel some ties to the, the sales company, you know, so it's yeah hard, but. Well, I may need to seek your counsel later this year or in 2024, because I think we're probably going to, I bet we'll start a family at some point in the next six to nine months. And that'll be a whole new ball game in terms of prioritizing time and sleep and and training and still trying to do this at a, at a relatively engaged level. So, um, I, uh, hats off to you for, for, uh, balancing all those commitments. I'm very impressed. Well, that's exciting. Pre-congrats on doing that. And I have a hunch that you'll be able to sort it out. No problem. I mean, it's the same as anything. Once you have a passion for something, it just priority. And so you get up a little earlier, you watch a little less TV and everything works out just fine. Yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There, I, there's some, I think it's called Cunningham's law where it's like the amount of time it takes to do something is proportional to how much time you have in your day to allow it to happen. And I feel like just just because things narrow and there's like tighter windows on, you know, time to completion, um, you actually do kind of rise to the occasion and you become more efficient and and better at time management. So I'm excited to to be forced into that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm a psychology major, and that was one of the main things. And it's so true. Once you realize the value of an hour, if that's all that you have, <laughs> you'll be amazed at your efficiency for sure. So, yeah. Before we finish up here, just on that kind of note as well, what are your biggest fears or struggles um, if you think in the future, if you let yourself think that far in the future with the show? Oh, it's so it's so interesting. Um, it's funny to me how the thing that inspired you to do the art in the space is the thing that gets left behind. Like... I started a podcast about trail running because I love trail running, but in the process, I have severely neglected my running and my racing interests in service of the podcast and the movie making we're doing and the race coverage. And there is, there is like a sadness associated with that. There is like, it's kind of a tragedy in a sense. And again, I'm not somebody that has a ton of talent. So it's not like, you know, people are missing out on like great performances, but I, I love the sport and it's something I enjoy doing. And I, and I love racing and I love setting goals and I love this process of trying to self-actualize. And, you know, at the end of the day, when I'm 80, you know, having the peace of mind, knowing that when I was in my twenties and thirties and early forties, I actually did get the very best out of myself. So I would say the biggest fear for me is that we grow the business at the expense of um, 
time spent in nature and, and time spent on trail and, and time spent racing and hanging out with friends and stuff like that. And that I become this like one, one trick pony and, uh, just super, you know, profit oriented and thinking about this one thing. So yeah, if there's one thing that I can do in 2024 to, to write the ship, it's to re-engage more with the community, friends, um, picking races, training for them. And even before like kids happen or their commitments, really time bounding the show because, uh, I'm a workaholic for sure. Like, and it's, it, it is to the detriment of a lot of areas of my life. And so that's my biggest fear. That's maybe not the answer you were expecting, but, um, I actually have no worries about the business. I, I, I think I know for a fact it's going to be fine. The fear that I have is that I let other areas of my life get away from, from me. No, I totally, I totally get that. And I think there's sayings out there about it where people always say, make your passion, your job, but equally like be careful <laughs> doing that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But you should what you aim for. So be careful about what you aim for. Yeah. And one thing that I think from the hour that I've gotten to know you, I think you're going to be a great dad. And I think you're going to be surprised at the aspect of teaching your kids about it and yeah. taking your kid out for their first kilometer run through a forest and hearing them giggle when they jump over logs and navigate the forest, which is like this amazing world it's going to bring you right back to that first time you did the Appalachian Trail and yes. you guys are out there for half an hour so you don't need to train for a hundred miler you watching trails through your kid's eye is <laughs> gonna be a whole new experience that you won't have that fear anymore well and you know what we've been kind of dreaming about this but what we do want to do one day and definitely sooner rather than later is once they are old enough like when they're like even four or five years old we do a through hike at the Appalachian Trail and, you know, they really get that like immediate immersion into nature and they're learning how to set up a campsite and cook and clean dishes and fish and all that kind of stuff. So I'm super excited. Yeah. Yeah. That will be, and so much more valuable than, I don't know, sitting in a classroom. <laughs> <laughs> Last couple of fun questions before sure. I like plug all your stuff here. Post really long race, hundred miler, hundred K, 50 mile, anything. What is your go-to meal? Oh my gosh. I'm so embarrassed to say this because <laughs> I'm trying to curb the habit. And anybody from the Salt Lake area that's listening to this knows that I have an addiction to McDonald's. I don't even just eat it after races. I eat it every day. I'm like on like the the number one Big Mac Powerade large fry diet with like a McFlurry on the side. No way. Oh yeah. It's this it's terrible. You know where it was born out of? So we, we've been remodeling our kitchen um, the last six weeks. And even before that, we've been doing a lot of housework. And I would say a year or two ago, we started these projects where it would just like knock out all of our appliances. And we were, it was either like the Whole Foods hot bar or it was McDonald's. And I love Whole Foods. That, that's my other addiction, but it's just so expensive. We started eating at McDonald's and there have just been like back to back to back renovations happening. And it's created this monstrosity that is the McDonald's diet. And so it used to be this thing that I only indulged in post-race, but it's, it's come to take over my entire life. So, um, the thing that I enjoy post-race is what I'm also actively trying to kick in my other, uh, non-running life. Well, I love that. That so far out of however many interviews I've done is definitely my favorite answer. <laughs> uh, and my other question is if you could describe trail running in three words, what would they be? It's hard. Convening with God. 
Oh, nice. Yeah, hundred percent. And I say that not as a not as a particularly religious or spiritual person, but I I do think that uh, if there is a God, it is they are most closely uh, found in nature. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, religious or not, you get that spiritual connection. And I think anybody who runs will know exactly what you mean. Well, I want to thank you so much. You're so talented and this has been so much fun and totally upfront. I was definitely nervous, but you are not intimidating once you get chatting. So um, thank you again. This has been so awesome. Go ahead, plug your podcast, your website, anything, where can people find you? Yeah. So, well, first of all, Hillary, it's really great to chat with you. Um, you're a natural interviewer and and you're curious. And I was kind of taking mental notes on during this whole conversation about what I could bring back to my show, Single Track, to be better at my craft. So thank you for that. But yeah, the, the show is called The Single Track Podcast. Um, you can find us on YouTube and on all the audio platforms. Uh, the best way to engage with us currently is on Instagram. So the, the, the handle is at run single track. And if you send us a DM there, um, we find that that's just a great place to talk about episodes and, and topics and suggestions for future stuff. So we also have a website, it's runsingletrack.com, but it's mostly like this auto generated site for episodes that were just published on, you know, Spotify and Apple. So there will be something more sophisticated to come next year, but for now, um, we're, we're renting out the platforms on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. So find us there. Okay. Well, thank you again so much and good luck in the future with all of your podcast and racing and family endeavors. Oh, thank you so much, Hillary. Appreciate you.